Thank you, Daniel. Uh, and amen. Uh, I would invite you to tur- turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We will be considering uh, the verse that Daniel has already read for us, as well as some of the surrounding context of that. We'll look at verses 14 to 21, Genesis chapter 3 this morning. I'll give you a second to turn there. I will read it, and then we will pray. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain... You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called the wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And God, by the power of your Spirit, may we hear a better sermon than the one that is preached this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first three chapters of Genesis are foundational. You see, in them we learn about God and His design for the world. God is presented as the powerful creator of all things. And as such, He gets to rule and reign. He gets to give the law. And He gets to set up how His world, including us as His creatures, function. And that is why the events of Genesis 3 are so earth-shattering. God created a garden temple with everything Adam and Eve needed to live. And He told them, everything is yours, but do not eat from the one tree. But as we have seen, that's exactly what they did. Their disobedience revealed a lack of trust in God that what He provided would be enough for them. And what we see in our passage this morning is how God responds to the sin of Adam and Eve. To be completely honest with you, I've, I've come to appreciate this text in a new way and hope you will too. I had only ever seen the judgment expressed, but there's also a lot of unexpected hope 
found here in this passage. So it is my custom to give you a a main point, a summary of what I think this passage teaches. Uh, I'm doing the same here this morning. You'll find it at the top of your note sheet. What I think this passage is helping us to understand is that God's promise often comes in unexpected ways. But it is always and only received by faith. God's promise often comes in unexpected ways. But it is always and only received by faith. And keep an eye out as well for for something I think that's going to be just a, a recurring theme. That even in the midst of curses and judgments, faith is expressed. So we will look at this passage under three headings. First, we will look at God's response to sin in verses 14 to 19. Then we will see Adam's response to God in verse 20. Then we will see God's work in verse 21. Starting in verse 14, we see God's response to the sin of Adam and Eve. As God announces His divine penalties upon each party involved, we see three speeches. First to the serpent, then to the woman, and finally to Adam. Spanning verses 14 and 15, we see God's curse of the serpent. And the serpent that was more crafty than any of the animals is now more cursed than any of the animals. Everybody look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In these verses, there are three aspects to God's curse upon the serpent. Here they are. He will crawl, he will eat dust, and he will be crushed. And and these three things work together to show that the penalty dealt out to the serpent is total and utter humiliation that increases with each aspect of the curse. First, a serpent is cursed above all livestock, and so he will crawl on his belly. As much as I do not like snakes, this is not saying that snakes themselves are cursed. I would really like it to say that, but it doesn't. Satan, depicted as a snake here and elsewhere in Scripture, is the ultimate recipient of this curse. I don't think Moses intends for us to come away from this passage with a disdain for snakes. Did snakes have legs prior to the fall? You can feel free to ask more about that in the Q&A. What we do know is that the serpent was used to tempt Adam and Eve. And so it is cursed and Satan in him. What we could take away from this is that every time we see a snake, we can be reminded that Satan will be totally and utterly humiliated. See, the snake crawling on its belly is symbolic for humiliation which is similar to eating dust, which is the second aspect of the curse. Eating dust is an ancient Near Eastern expression that is still said on a playground near you, or at least it was when I was growing up. The question, want a race? is oftentimes followed with, you're going to eat my dust. So that means that not only am I going to win but I'm going to humiliate you in the process. The final aspect of the curse is the most severe. You will be crushed. In 15, God says to Satan, there will be enmity between you and the woman and you and her offspring. This enmity will be immediate, it will be ongoing, and it will be ultimate. The outworking of these three lines will drive the storyline of of everything that follows in Scripture. 
You see, the, the immediate fulfillment of this is seen in the curse, that the serpent, as a representative of Satan, is humiliated. He crawls on his belly and eats dust. But the ongoing fulfillment is seen throughout the entire Bible in enmity that exists between two parties. Jim Hamilton says, These individual and corporate enmities are outworkings of the justice of God announced in Genesis 3.15. In the symbolic world, Genesis gives its readers, people are either seed of the serpent on the side of the snake in the garden or seed of the woman on the side of God and trusting in his promises. Consider just a brief, lift, a brief, brief list that shows the outworking of, of this enmity that exists between two parties. In Genesis chapter 4, even, pretty soon after this, we see Cain, who is seed of the serpent, and he kills Abel, who is seed of the woman. But it continues. Enmity in, continues and increases. Ishmael, seed of the serpent. Isaac, seed of the woman. Esau, seed of the serpent. But Jacob, seed of the woman. Or, or corporate entities. Pharaoh, seed of the woman, representing Egypt, but, but seed of the woman, represented by Abraham and Sarah. The Philistines are seed of the serpent, whereas Isaac and his people, or even David in fighting Goliath, seed of the woman. Or we could look at the world, seed of the serpent, and the church as seed of the woman. Herod represents the seed of the serpent, or Jesus representing the seed of the woman. And, and we see this, even John the Baptist calls the Pharisees the brood of vipers. And if we were to, to read each of these accounts, we would find strife and enmity between each of the parties mentioned. And this is the outworking of the ongoing curse on the serpent, that there will be enmity between him, between his offspring, and between the offspring of the woman. This theme carries through all of Scripture until the curse reaches its ultimate fulfillment in the work of Christ, specifically his work on the cross and his second coming to deal the death blow to the serpent and all of his offspring. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection secured the final victory and will be fully and finally won when He returns. And so, for now, it's the job of the church to continue in the crushing work of humiliating Satan by advancing the gospel. Paul says as much in, in two places. Consider Romans 16.20. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In Colossians 2.15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now I'm sure that, that in the garden, Satan thought he had won. You see, he, he drew Adam and Eve away from God. But instead of destroying them, God promises to destroy Satan. Just like on the cross, I'm, I'm sure Satan thought he won. But what was really happening was that God was triumphing over Satan, putting him to open shame. As, see, in the garden, Satan is humiliated. And on the cross, God is holding up Satan for public shame. I mean, this, this is intuitive, right? What's worse? A head wound or a foot wound? We don't need to ask a doctor which is more serious. A crushed head or a bruised heel. We're sure that Jesus comes out on top of that battle. That's why we call it Good Friday. Because on the cross, we don't see a helpless victim. We see a conquering, head-crushing king defeating Satan. The very thing Satan thought was his greatest victory 
was actually his ultimate defeat. In Genesis 3.15, theologians like to to use Latin phrases to describe things. Uh, They call it the proto-euangelion, which means the first pronouncement of the gospel. And, And so what we see when God is promising to crush the head of the serpent is the first pronouncement of the gospel. And, and in that, the curse of Satan is simultaneously the promise of redemption fulfilled at the cross. As each nail is driven through the flesh of Jesus, he is striking the serpent's head. And so I think this passage is, is the headwaters of the gospel. And its current gets stronger with every page of Scripture. But aside from the explicit mention of the head-crushing work to come, there's also implicit hope in this verse as well, even in the midst of a curse. There's talk of offspring of the woman. And I think it's at this point that, that Moses wants us to ask, well, wait a minute. Weren't they supposed to die? And yes, they were. But what we see is that not only will the woman not immediately die physically, the man won't either. Because each is necessary to bring about offspring. And so this means that the promised punishment of death will not be immediately enacted. And this is an act of God's grace. One day, an offspring long far off in the future will come from the seed of the woman to do what Adam should have done as soon as that snake started talking. Adam should have crushed its head of part of his duty to work and keep the garden. But praise God that where Adam failed, Jesus did not. And he will crush the head of the serpent. Steve Wellam says God's gracious post-fall promise that despite Adam's sin and rebellion, God's purpose for humans will stand And that from humanity, God will graciously provide a Redeemer to undo what Adam did. That offspring that's promised coming to crush the head of the serpent is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, too, who put the enmity there? It says, I will put enmity. So the enmity is put there by God. And so so though Eve committed cosmic treason, God does not disown her. Another act of God's grace. God puts enmity between her and the serpent instead of between himself and the woman. It's as if God is taking her back and saying, Snake, she will no longer serve you. She will serve me. It's, it's like what happens uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Edmund is drawn away from the fellowship his, of his family by the sweetness of Turkish delight into the service of the White Witch. And in so doing, he became a traitor. Narnian law requires death for traitors. But instead of, As- uh, instead of Edmund dying, Aslan steps in and offers his own life as a sacrifice to let Edmund go free. And surely the white witch thought that she won. But what happens? Aslan raises to life to return and ultimately defeat the white witch. Do you realize that's what has been done for us in the gospel? We are wooed away from our creator and sustainer to lesser things. But instead of disowning us, God in the person of the Lord Jesus, steps in our place to pay our penalty and restore the fellowship that is broken by our rebellion. That is one of the amazing things about this passage. That unexpected hope is woven throughout. 
and that even in the midst of curse, blessing remains. And I think we learn about God that even in his justice, God is merciful. The promise of God is given in an unexpected way. You see, God plans to glorify himself by redeeming fallen humanity through something unexpected. Think about it. A virgin giving birth to one who is at the same time both God and man who would win by dying. God promises a snake-crushing offspring is coming as a display of both the seriousness of sin but the wonder of salvation. See, the justice of God is put on display as he curses the serpent. But even as he does, his mercy is shown as he announces future salvation. So even in the midst of this curse, there is hope. And in the midst of this judgment, there is mercy. By way of application, what does this mean for us? Well, all of us are sinners who with our first first parents have committed cosmic treason. But if we are in Christ, we have no judgment to fear, only mercy. And, and if you would like to know about, more about that this morning, talk to the person who invited you. Talk to someone sitting around you. They or, or I would love to tell you more about being found in Christ. But next, we see that God judges the woman. Everyone look at verse 16. To the woman he said... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In this speech of God to the woman, we see that the woman is judged in two ways, each of which refers to what she is designed by God to do. First, together with the man, they were charged to be fruitful and multiply. Difficulty is introduced to this because of sin. Now, I don't think this passage means that that childbirth was painless before the fall. As it does say, multiply. I think this refers to the entire process of motherhood. Anything from, from, from difficulty in conception, including infertility, miscarriages, and, and all of that, but all the way to pain in childbirth or genetic abnormalities, relational strife between mother and child, or as Proverbs 10.1 says, a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. I think what this means is that everything about motherhood is going to be more difficult, cause more pain, and will bear the long-term effects of sin. See, enmity enters, pain persists, and motherhood's joy is mixed with sorrow. But second, the woman was also judged in in regards to the fact that she was told to be a helper fit for him. And instead, what we see is that her desire shall be contrary to her husband, and he shall rule over her. This portion, portion of the passage is highly debated, just to let you know that up front. Uh, I think part of it is that your understanding of this verse has implications for how you understand the husband-wife relationship and God's design of marriage. So, so let's read the verse again. It says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The difficulty of this verse is mainly to do with the word desire. And specifically, if that refers to opposing the created order or not. The question is whether or not the desire is good, right, and holy, or if the desire is to be understood as a sinful urge to overcome and dominate. It's increased in its difficulty because the Hebrew word behind our English word here in Genesis chapter 3, is used only three times in Scripture. We see it here, firstly, but then it's also in chapter 4, verse 7, and finally in Song of Songs 7, verse 10. 
I think this is, this is necessary for us to discuss for two reasons. Firstly, because we read Scripture in translation. And secondly, uh, because um, from this we come to understand the husband-wife relationship. And, and we need to understand the husband-wife relationship. So we read Scripture in translation. The first thing we need to know is that all translation is interpretation. So that's why the translation you read is important. There are translations that will render this verse differently to make their point. And that'll happen on either side of the debate. But we need to know that up front. The more literal a translation is, the less room there is for interpretation in the translation. Uh, Just as a side note, that's why we recommend the ESV, the English Standard Version, as it falls on the more literal end of the spectrum. Secondly, this passage gives us insight into the husband-wife relationship, uh, which is where I want to spend uh, the bulk of our time discussing this passage. There are two articles uh, on the Gospel Coalition that present uh, both of the understandings that I'm going to cover uh, clearly and succinctly, and I would point you to them for deeper study. I will also draw on them more in the Q&A, as I'm sure there will be questions here. A principle for interpretation is that we should use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so it's good that there are other usages of this word. We go to the clearer passages to help us understand the less clear passages. Genesis 3.16 is one of the less clear passages. So we look to those other passages to help us understand it. Uh, The first view I will mention goes to Song of Solomon 7.10, to help define desire here in Genesis, and, and it is articulated this way. They would define desire uh, as this phrase reflects an idolatrous longing for something from the man that the woman was created to receive from God alone. This is presented by Wendy Alsup on, on the Gospel Coalition. So she argues that desire refers to, to a, a longing to find satisfaction from the man instead of God. So Eve has a good desire that is wrongly ordered. It's good for her to desire satisfaction, but wrong for her to find it in the man instead of God. This is also the position taken in a popular book called Worthy, uh, written by Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher. Uh, I think the article on the Gospel Coalition is, is clearer and more persuasive, so I'm not quoting from them. Uh, and Wendy Alsop's article is free. You don't have to buy the book, so even better. It's the same position in both. So I, and I, I do know that there are several here who have read Worthy, uh, so I mention it specifically. But, but Alsop summarizes this position's view of how to define desire by saying, as a result of the fall, even though childbirth is painful and the man rules her, the woman still has a morbid craving for him, looking to him in unhealthy ways that do not reflect her status as an image-bearer of God. The woman wants something from the man that he was never intended to provide, that even on his best day, he is not equipped to provide. He has become an idol. So in this view, just as a summary before moving on to the next one, desire is a good thing directed at the wrong source. The second view uses Genesis 4-7 to help define desire, which says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In this view, articulated by Claire Smith, desire is understood, it's defined as possess, or control, or direct, or dominate. So instead of seeing this as a good desire wrongly ordered, it's a corruption of God's design. And this view sees here a rejection of God's rule and order of relationships within his creation, and the frustration of that order as a consequence. So in this understanding, the marriage relationship after the fall is one of mutual struggle and frustration. 
This is the position taken by Kevin DeYoung in a book called Men and Women in the Church. Uh, He says this, Just as sin desired to have mastery over Cain, so the woman, tainted by sin, desires to have mastery over her husband. So in this view, desire is a sinful inclination against the husband's role as leader. I do think this is important. Uh, and, and I think it is necessary for us to discuss because there are implications for how we live in light of how we understand this verse. Surely there is much that we could say about uh, each of the views that I've presented, uh, but consider it a mercy that I'm not also presenting the at least four other views um, because I think these two are probably the most prominent uh, and I think they give us enough information to help uh, decide and apply uh, how we are to live in light of this verse. If you have further questions about the other four views, uh, come to the Q&A. So I am convinced that desire here refers to controlling or dominating as presented in the second view. A few reasons why. I think this makes sense of the sentence as a whole. As the woman's action finds a reciprocal action from her husband. In the verse, she desires to possess or control him, and he instead will rule over her. I think it also better accounts for the theme of conflict that we see in verses 14 to 19, and the distortion of roles introduced by the fall. I think it also is better to go to Genesis 4-7, instead of Song of Solomon to help understand desire because Song of Solomon is a different author in a different time period. But Moses wrote all of Genesis and he's using the same word, it's actually the same exact phrase and construction in the original Hebrew and and it's only a chapter later. So defining desire as control or domination I think also fits the New Testament teaching on men, women, and marriage best. It also fits that, that the different gender roles and responsibilities found in the New... It fits that there are different gender roles and responsibilities found in the New Testament where God focuses on wives respectfully submitting themselves to their husbands and their husbands sacrificially leading their wives. So that is the transforming work of the Spirit in, regard, in, in this regard, in, in the, the teaching that is given to husbands and wives in the New Testament, is directed toward restoring God's original design and restoring the order of the relationship that existed prior to the fall, not a woman's inclination to put her husband or men generally in the place of God. So as we seek to understand and apply this passage, I think it's, it's helpful, just a helpful reminder for us to keep in mind uh, what, what Susan Foe says. She said, the rule of the husband is not a result of punishment for sin. She says, the headship of the husband over the wife is a part of the creation order. Just, just go to, to Ephesians 5. As Paul notes, headship and submission are part of God's good design for marriage. And I think the first way that strife is introduced is Eve's tendency to flip the created order and take the leadership role that was given to Adam. But secondly, there's there's also a second tendency, which is Adam's tendency to rule harshly with more force than necessary. Susan Foe continues, the woman was subordinate to her husband from the beginning, But the supremacy of the man was not intended to become a despotic rule, crushing the woman into a slave, as it does after the fall. Before the fall, man's rule was gentle. Afterward, it is tyrannous. Rule, in Genesis 3.16, is said to suggest suppressing or overcoming. She goes on to say, These words mark the beginning of, of the battle of the sexes. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight for his headship. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. 
The woman's desire is to control her husband, to usurp his divinely appointed headship. So the rule of love founded in paradise is is replaced by struggle, tyranny, and domination. So I think from this verse we we learn that, that Adam and every husband after him will have the tendency to rule over his wife with more force than necessary. Both the husband and the wife have fleshly tendencies that need to be fought in marriage to accurately reflect God's design. God's design is that wives submit to their husbands and that husbands lovingly lead their wives. And praise God that what was broken in the fall is restored in Christ. Through the reconciling work of Jesus, the harmonious relationship God designed can be the reality put on display as we display the goodness of God in the process. Kevin DeYoung says the following, which I think helps us apply these verses specifically to our lives. He says, according to Genesis 3.16, the marriage relationship after the fall became one of mutual struggle and frustration. The inclination of a sinful wife is to rebel against her husband's authority And try to control him. Paul's command in Ephesians 5 aims to reverse the effects of the curse and have Christian wives submit rather than usurp. Likewise, men who are supposed to lead and protect and provide for their wives now tainted by sin treat their wives harshly. The inclination of the sinful man is to exercise ungodly rule over his wife. Paul's command aims to reverse the effects of the curse and have Christian husbands love rather than domineer. So what does this mean for us? Firstly, Christian wives, I think for for you it means that you forsake resistance to your husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to your husband's leadership. Secondly, for Christian husbands, it means that you forsake harsh or selfish leadership and grow in love and care for your wife. And thirdly, if you're not married but desire to be, aim for those things and put yourself around people who do it well. I I do just have one final word of caution uh, that comes from something that I do think that uh, Fitzpatrick and Schumacher get right and worthy. Uh, they, they say many people who hold the position that I've just articulated, the, the position that I hold, have a tendency to view women with suspicion, saying that, that, that they are the ones who tempted Adam, and so women are not to be trusted and should be treated with suspicion and with caution. And even use that as the reason as why women should not serve in the church. But I agree with what, what Schumacher says, speaking of the mindset that he once held and his conclusion. He says, I became suspicious of women who taught the scripture, who wrote theology books or showed friendly affection. His conclusion from that is, such an attitude is not only wrong, it is evil. Amen. And and so for those of us who hold that position, may we not fall into that error, but rather treat women with the respect, love, and care worthy of any image bearer. Then we see the man addressed by God. So let's look at verses 17 to 19. In 17 we read, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Let's not take verse 17 out of context. 
And don't take it to mean that a husband should never listen to his wife. It is a foolish husband who never listens to his wife. So I'll just front load some applications specifically for husbands or those desiring to be related to this verse. Husbands, seek the counsel of your wife as God's good gift for you. Remember that this is in the context of of Adam enticing Eve to sin. Eve enticing Adam to sin. He obeyed the voice of his wife instead of obeying the voice of God. And the result is judgment against Adam seen in the cursing of the ground. So the judgment upon the man and the curse of the land go together. The land, because of the curse, becomes unyielding and unfruitful. Adam was told to work and keep the garden. This is his divine responsibility, but now it is going to be done in difficulty. So work is no longer purely joyful. It is mixed with sweat. The fall makes work difficult. Now, I don't think this, that this means that that thorns and thistles were invented in the, th- in the fall. But I think it's pointing to the fact that everything in nature that was once harmonious is no longer so. But then Adam is told that, that he will return to the ground. This is, this is his reminder and ours that death is coming. The wages of sin is death. We see in throughout Scripture that death is the ultimate penalty for sin. And the passage could stop right here. With God telling Adam, you will return to the dust, for to dust you were taken. See, because we need to understand God would be perfectly just to deal with sin swiftly and immediately. But the passage continues and shows us that God is gracious. And I think it's, it's easy to overlook the next two verses. Uh, but I want to show why I think they're so amazing. So let's look at verse 20 where we see Adam's response to God. Verse 20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam's just been told, you're going to return to the dust. You might expect Adam to start shopping around for a burial plot. But, but that's not what happens. See, Adam responds to what God has just said by naming the woman Eve. Because she is the mother of all the living. Adam has just been told that he will die and return to the dust, and he's naming the woman Eve, the mother of all living. Do do you see it? Adam heard the promise, Adam believed God. See, God promised there is one coming who would crush the head of the serpent. God promised an offspring from the woman. Which means they're not going to die in a swift act of God's justice. And and in taking hold of that promise, in an act of faith, Adam names his wife the mother of all living. In the midst of, of curses and judgment, Adam has faith. God promises deliverance and Adam believes. Again, Jim Hamilton says, Adam and Eve's only hope for salvation is the judgment that God promises will fall on the snake through their seed. Adam and Eve knew they deserved death. They they hid themselves from God and they hid themselves uh, from one another. But what does God do? He comes to them. And even in the midst 
of this wicked act of rebellion, God promises forgiveness. God, God gives hope and, and Adam sees it. He gets it. Adam takes hold of the promise in the only way God's promise can be received. Faith. If there is going to be offspring, the man and woman will have to live to produce them. And that's what, that's what Adam says when he names the woman Eve. He says, we're not dying. There's offspring coming. And I think we should be shocked at the mercy displayed in this passage. God would have been completely just to kill them on the spot. But instead, he reveals himself as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he promises to fix what they broke. This, this is absolutely glorious. And it would have been enough to merely let them live. But God does more. In verse 21, we see God's work. Look, look at verse 21 with me. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Adam's act of faith leads to clothes to cover their shame. See, the, the pathetic fig leaves of their own making would not do the job. So God did it for them by shedding blood. And in what was likely the first sacrifice, God did something to deal with sin. Someone else died. And we know that, that because the sacrificial system stayed in place until the death of Christ, that this covering was only temporary. But do you, do you realize that this is exactly what, what Jesus did for us in His once-for-all final sacrifice for sin? The blood of an innocent one was shed to forgive the shame of the guilty ones. Where sin was only covered before, it is wiped away in Christ. Cast as far away as the east is from the west. You know how far that is? If you want to find out, start walking east. Give me a call when you hit west. It's not going to happen. But, but don't miss this this morning. In another act of God's grace, you have heard the promise this morning. And instead of looking to the future one who is to come, we look to the past, to the one who has already come. You see, the sacrifice in the garden points to the sacrifice on the cross. Both put God's mercy on display. Those who deserved to die live because someone else dies in their place. And so how do you take hold of this unexpected promise? Faith. Believe that the only way for what was broken to be restored is through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put away your fig leaf attempts to cover your sin. See, Jesus doesn't, doesn't just cover. He removes and gives His own righteousness to us. But I need you to know you can't earn it. You must simply believe. Everything from this point forward in the book of Genesis, in, in the Bible, and, and in the history of the world is different because of God's mercy and grace put on display here in the garden. So the world is, is infected with sin 
but it's infused with hope. The enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman unfolds on every page and it unfolds in all of our lives. But we know the serpent will be crushed. And if you are in Christ, you will not be crushed by God's justice. You will be upheld by His mercy. And so, the application of this sermon is simple. Believe. Believe the promise of God. You've heard the promise this morning. Now, Now believe it. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Who not only did what Adam did not, but did the work that we could not do and restored the relationship, the broken relationship between God and man. So may we cling to and rest in His work alone, knowing God's promise often comes in unexpected ways. But it is always and only received by faith. Let's pray. Father, shock us by your mercy and help us to respond in faith. May we believe the promise and may we live our lives as those who are faithful to you. Be glorified in doing this in us and help us, God, to trust you, to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge you, knowing that you will direct our paths both here on this earth and for eternity. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.